there's that. By the way, Christianity is, if it's anything, it's personal. It's, um, if you don't understand very much about the Bible, if you just superficially read the Bible, you quickly come to the conclusion that all of this is personal. <laughs> this is not, uh, the Bible is not some theoretical treatise. It's not abstract. It's about a personal God redeeming a people for Himself. And I can remember when I was converted at the age of 28, I still remember being struck by how personal it all was. Uh, as I read the account, the creation account is, is God, this, this, this aura of intimacy as God creates man and he, he, he forms man and He breathes life into man. I just was struck by how personal that aspect of creation was. Of course, sin was and is a very personal act of rebellion against our Creator. Redemption is a very personal and sacrificial act of the Son of God uh, in behalf of His people. And of course, repentance, faith, and obedience are highly personal acts of response to the finished work of Jesus. As one theologian said, the ultimate fact about the universe, and I would say the Bible, is a personal God. He's not some ethereal, unknowable power or force. He is a being. Capital B, being. He is personal. Again, if we read our Bibles, we understand that keenly, that God is personal. It's in His name. What is God's name? What did God tell Moa, uh, Moses? Uh, what did God tell him? Moses said, well, who, who shall I say sent me? And God said what? I am who I am. You got two pronouns, two first person pronouns and a relative pronoun in God's name. I mean, right from the get-go, it's personal. You know, just from his name, you know, <laughs> you know that it's personal. And of course, the Bible reveals that 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 he he acts in a personal way. He loves. He he gives. He speaks. He cares. He makes and keeps promises. He reveals himself. He chooses things. He thinks. He is kind. He is gracious. He is merciful. If we understand conversion, we understand how the Bible talks about it. Jesus said, well, what is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's personal. And what does He say about eternal life? What does Jesus say about eternal life over in John 17.3? This is eternal life that they may go to church and do sacraments and make pilgrimages. Or etc., etc., etc. No, what does Jesus say? This is eternal life that they may know you. So Jesus defines it for us. It's love and it's knowing. Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is loving God and knowing God. If you've bought into anything less than that, that is not biblical Christianity. It's false. It's pseudo. You're. It, it, if your Christianity is not about knowing Him and loving Him, you've bought into some cheap 
imitation of what true Christianity is. It's all personal with God. And so I want to ask, we have a small gathering tonight, but is it personal with you? Because if it's not personal with you, you probably don't know Him yet. Is it personal with you? The thing I noticed when I read Psalm 139 and I studied it this week, this is very personal to David. I counted 39. No. I counted 49 first-person pronouns in this psalm. And I counted 30 second-person pronouns. It's David pouring out his heart to his God. If you don't get anything else from Psalm 139, you understand it's highly personal. You know? And that's what struck me as I studied the text this week. And listen, no human being can avoid the personal one-on-one meeting with their Creator. It will happen for every one of us. Every human being who's ever been conceived, I'll start there, not merely drawn a breath, will stand. It'll be a personal encounter with the living God. No human being can avoid this. And it's really, it's simple as this. We either loved Him or we didn't. We either knew Him or we didn't. We either followed Him or we didn't. It's not about what did the Pope say, or did you do your sacraments, or did you do your ordinance? What did the preacher say? Did you have perfect attendance at church? That doesn't mean anything. If we study our Bibles, we understand. It's getting ready to look into the eyes of God. You know, that's why I know I got a little fired up last week. I get fired up because... There's nothing more important than this, beloved. And I can't let you come in here for the hour we're together and let you think anything other than this is the most important thing in your life. Knowing and loving your God. And then going out into the world and living exactly that (laughs) before, before men. It's all through the Scriptures. Very briefly, God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. It's very personal. And we know David responds in Psalm 73. He says, Beside you, O God, I desire nothing on the earth. Extremely personal. Of course, we know, Dave, we, know, we know Paul's words. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Going to church. I want you to come to church. You should come to church. We talked about it last week. Paul said there's surpassing value of knowing God. Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Beloved, it's personal and it's intimate and it's passionate or it's not Christianity. Biblical Christianity, it's a love affair. It's a sacred romance. As Augustine said, 
fifth century theologian. God, You have made us for Yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in You. It's personal. And that's what David is, I think, at least in my mind, uh, drawing me to understand. As we look at Psalm 139 together tonight, um, it's a beautiful psalm. I know many of you are familiar with it. But here's an outline. Verses 1-6. through David contemplates his omniscient God. Verses 7-12, through David contemplates the omnipresence of God. Verses 13-18, to David contemplates the omnipotence of God in creation. And then verses 19-24, to David is contemplating the righteousness of God in judging the wicked. So let me read the first six verses for you. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know, oh, pardon me, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my laying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain unto it. If we, if we understand the first six verses of Psalm 139, we understand how the omniscience... You understand what omniscience means? It simply means God is all-knowing. As evidenced in the subject of the text, But God's omniscience, it uncovers and it promotes either intimacy or enmity in the heart of man. Do you understand? Because God sees it all in your heart. He sees in your heart, do you really love God? Or are you merely playing games with God? Or are you uh, indifferent to, to God? Or do you actually hate God? which the Bible tells us all unregenerate men do to one degree or another. God sees all this. So, God's omniscience actually reveals and and uncovers... We know, don't we? But it reveals that whether we are in intimacy with God or we are at enmity with God. As C.S. Lewis says, God sees it all and that puts us in a terrible fix. You know, uh, He sees it all. Every ugly, disgusting, appalling, shameful thing. He sees it all. Lewis says this, he continues, Christianity is a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. For we have made ourselves the enemies of God. This is a terrifying fact. He knows it all, beloved. Verses 1-6 through of Psalm 139. It's true. God says through His prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 11.5, I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. So for the unbeliever, this is sheer terror if he actually believes intellectually, even intellectually, if he actually believes what the Bible says about God's knowledge of him, this would, this would be for the thinking man sheer terror. 
Because God sees and knows the depth of the man's sin and depravity. As verse 4 tells us, He knows the Word before it is on our tongue. You know, there'll be no witnesses at the judgment seat. God won't call a witness to condemn anybody. He doesn't have to. Your heart is laid bare before the cosmic judge. There'll be no witness. There'll be no objection. There'll be no testimony. There'll be no defense. God simply looks into your heart. He knows and you know. It's personal. That's just how personal it will be. God says in Psalm 90, verse 8, Moses, that Moses wrote this psalm. He said, the secret sins are before God. Again, Lewis is right. This is a terrifying fact for the unbeliever. Enmity is confirmed. God can see the enmity in your heart for all who are outside of Jesus. But what I want to say to us tonight, for the believer... This is a great comfort. Why is it a great comfort that God knows my heart? Well, unfortunately, He sees my sin. Yes? He sees it. I know He sees it. And I repent. I confess. And I get up in the morning and I sin again and He sees it again. But why is it a blessing and a comfort that God can see my heart? I said it earlier. He knows I love Him. You know, this is best illustrated in, in John 21 when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And what was Peter's final answer? He says, Jesus, you know I love you. <laughs> you know, this is a great comfort to me because uh, you know, on the day when no one else can tell I'm a Christian, when I absolutely don't even act like a Christian, Jesus knows I love Him. Through all the garbage and all the work of sanctification still yet undone in my own heart, Jesus knows I love Him. He knows I love Him. Don't you love that about Him? He knows you love Him. (laughs) You don't have to prove anything to God. He knows you love Him. You don't have to prove anything to God. He already knows. And I dare say, He feels your love. Even as we feel his love. And I always like to you know, make the, the qualification. Christianity is certainly n- much more than a feeling. But it certainly doesn't exclude our feelings. Intimacy confirmed. God looks into the believer's heart. And He knows I love Him. This is a great joy. And, a great, and I think David, this is one thing David is rejoicing in, right? I think it's one thing that David is rejoicing in. David says, you search me, you know me, you understand me, you scrutinize me, you're intimately acquainted with me, you know every word. You have enclosed me behind and before. David says, such knowledge, it's too wonderful, it's too high for me. It's one reason that outward religious performance, pseudo-Christian performance, is not only hypocrisy, it is in one sense blasphemy. Because it's like saying, well, I can go into church and I can play a religious game with God and He's happy with that. Wrong. It's like you're saying, I don't believe 
Psalm 139, 1 through 6. I don't believe it. Or, or, or nobody would ever come into um, the house of God and play a religious game. It's, in my mind, it's, it goes way past hypocrisy. It, 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 it's treading on blasphemy. It's a sub-biblical view of God to think we can play religious games with Him. Beloved, we simply can't. Verses 7-12, through 12, Where can I go from Thy Spirit? Or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there Your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. That's verses 7 through 12. This first verse here, you may misunderstand. You know, some people think, well, David's trying to find a place to get away from God. That's, that's not the case. This is rhetorical. This is a literary device. He's just saying, there's nowhere I can go. That my God is not there. And that my God's been there forever. Right? It's a worship-provoking question. Where can I go? I can go nowhere. That my God is not there. He is behind me. He is before me. He's ever-present. I like how God says it through the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 23, verse 23. God says, Am I not God who is near? I love that. And we know what David says over in Psalm 34, 7. The Lord encamps around me. David is worshiping the Lord. He's worshiping the omnipresence of God. The ubiquitous presence of God. The ever-presence, all-presence of God. It's not that God simply creates heaven and earth. He contains it. Do you understand? He contains heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is in God. God's not in it. He contains it. He is omnipresent. In verse 8, David says, whether I'm in heaven or whether I'm in Sheol. Now, Sheol can mean... Three different things. It can mean the depths of the earth. It can mean the place of the dead. Or it can mean hell. David says, God is everywhere. And He's present in hell through His fierce wrath. That may be a new thought to some of you. But David is is saying, God is ever-present everywhere. It's the clear meaning of what he's saying. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher in the 19th century, says, of course, the presence of God produces differing effects in heaven and in hell, but He is unquestionably in both. The bliss of one and the terror of the other. Verses 9-12, through 12, David says, man, if I'm, a, if I'm flying or if I'm swimming, I'm, that's my paraphrase, God's hand is on me. God's hand leads me. God is with me. In the darkness, He sees me. Darkness is not darkness to God. He sees me. 
as we've been saying for the last eight weeks as we've studied the psalm, David knows he can live huge and he can die well. His God is omniscient. His God is omnipresent. His God holds him. His God will never let go of him. God is everywhere David has been and God knows everything that's going to happen when David goes there. <laughs> Beloved, there's great license here for us who actually believe what God says about Himself in the Bible. You, tremendous liberty. You have, a, you have absolute freedom on the earth to live as large as you dare because our God is God. I, I think we can feel that David is not only full of awe, he is full of worship. And I want to say this, when I'm full of awe, I'm full of worship, I'm emboldened, and I am full of anticipation. Let me ask you, this is a big word that I, I don't hear many Christians use, and I, I use it some, I'm going to start using it more, because I want to encourage you to anticipate what God has prepared for you. It may be hard, but it will be good. It may be difficult, but it's about that intimacy. You know, we've been talking a lot about the last few weeks. Do you have a, an anticipation of, of knowing God in a deeper way? In a fuller way? In a more amazing way? In a way that you, you could easily sing that song full of wonder, awestruck wonder? I mean, that's how I feel. I hope this is how you feel in your walk with Christ, I'm perpetually filled with awe. And I think if we're not, we haven't seen Him yet. We haven't met Him yet. I keep asking you this question, how many guys did Nebuchadnezzar throw in the fire? And how many guys did he see in the fire? I think the point is obvious. My question to you is, why do you think I keep asking you this question? <laughs> because what I, what I want to know is, are you living that reality? Do you believe that? And will you live that? God is always with His people. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It couldn't get much worse than being cast into a furnace that's been heated uh, seven times hotter than normal. I think it was seven times. But Jesus was in there with them. And of course, my other example I always like to give is Stephen being stoned. Of course, Stephen wasn't delivered in a temporal sense, but who was standing at the right hand of God to welcome him into paradise? Did anybody remember? The skies opened and Stephen saw Jesus. Jesus was with him in his martyrdom. I think David is saying to us in Psalm 139 that good theology, as we talked about last week, and that's what got me all worked up, good theology inevitably leads to doxology, which inevitably leads to a life of radically loving and following Christ. It's just what happens. It's like night following day. You know, if we've, if we've grabbed on, if we've caught a glimpse of God, our hearts will be full of praise and you can't stop us from being disciples. We have to be disciples. You don't have to be a disciple to be saved. You have to be a disciple because you are saved. You have to be. 
Everything else in life, as I said multiple times last week, is way too small. I'm a son of the king. I'm a daughter of the king. I can't live for that. I can't live for health, wealth, and prosperity. I just can't live for that. It doesn't fill up my heart and my mind and my anticipation. Right? It just doesn't. It's just not enough for me. And I, I read uh, verses 13 through, through uh, 18, so I won't reread those. You heard me read those earlier. But God is the master designer. He's the master programmer. He's the master engineer. He's the master artisan. And the womb is His studio. Right? And God is doing miraculous things in the human womb. As David says, God is weaving humanity. We talked about this. I just parenthetically must mention this. We talked about it in February as we talked about abortion. Conception and gestation is a fearful and wonderful work of God a worship-provoking thing is happening in the womb. It's just reality. Conception and pregnancy are all about the genius and power of God. You know, the world sees it as mere biology. Of course, they, don't, they can't really explain it or understand it or quantify the miraculous nature of it. But they just call it biology. The Christian gets on his face and worships. It's the handiwork of God, beloved. There are many biblical arguments against abortion. The sixth commandment would be adequate. You shall not murder. God is making image bearers in the womb. This is why Satan attacks the womb. He's attacking the image of God in the womb. It's the highest biblical argument against abortion. That's the image of God in the womb. Don't you dare touch it! It's God's handiwork. And we know great wrath will come. We know great wrath will come for the shedding of innocent blood. It happened in Israel. It'll happen again! God has warned us. And I think we saw back in February when we talked about it, 50 million is the World Health Organization guesstimate on abortions a year. 50 million human beings are being slaughtered annually. David says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And of course, David didn't. David doesn't know near what we know, right? As far as the synergies and the genius and the complexity and... and of the human body. David, David doesn't... We know a lot more than David did. I mean, we, we, can actually, we can actually see some of the stuff that's going on inside the human body. You know, you may not know this. I, th I think there's this assumption that science and doctors, they know everything about the human body. They don't know very much, actually. If you actually read much about it, they have a lot more questions than they have answers. And, you know, one, let me just, do you know what's going on in your eye when you look at me? Let me just read this to you. When the light bounces off of me and strikes your retina, 
a photon interacts with a molecule called 11 cis-retinol, which rearranges within a picosecond. What's a picosecond? Actually, well, the definition, I, the definition I have, it's, it's the, the length of time it takes for light to go the breadth of a hair, human hair. That's a picosecond. So, it rearranges within picoseconds to transretinol. The change in the shape of the retinol molecule forces a change in the shape of the protein, rhodopsin, to which the retinol is tightly bound. The protein's metamorphosis alters its behavior. Now called metarhodopsin 2, the protein stacks to another protein called transducin, which interacts with a molecule called GDP, blah, 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 blah. Now, you know, only recently have science begun to understand the, the physiology and the chemistry of eyesight. Only, rec only very, very rec recently. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, one more quick example. You guys know about the, the you know about the deoxyribonucleic acid thing, right? You know, science is just in awe. It's this, it's this, it's this gene. It, it, it's the hundred thousand gene software of the human body that resides in every one of the hundred trillion cells in your body. And there's so much information in there. Science is astonished. Uh, I won't go into any greater detail. I'll say this. If you took all the DNA in your body and you unwound it and you joined it together end to end, the strand would stretch from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. That's how much information God has put in the cell so your cell can run beloved, there's genius here. There's infinite mind. The fingerprint of God is here. I could go on with stuff like that, but just because I'm short of time, I'll go on. David says, I know it very well. And this is the one thing I want to drive home to you. Do you know it? Do you know you are wonderfully and fearfully made? Do you know His works are wonderful? Do you know it? If you know it, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you surf the internet. It changes the way you treat your spouse. It changes the way you raise your kids. It changes how you function in the local church. It changes how you live in the neighborhood. If you know it! It's important that we understand. David says, I know it. I know I'm fearfully in one for me. And I haven't even talked about the spiritual capacity that God has given us. I don't have time. But God's given us the capacity to know Him, right? To love Him, to be in relationship with Him, to become eternal. To have eternal life in Him. Don't have time to talk about it. You guys know the great text. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. God says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of My Spirit? He's talking to believers, obviously. This is not true for unbelievers. Who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You know that, right? This is what David is saying. One thing he's saying. You're not your own. If you're a Christian, you're not your own. You don't just get to do whatever you want. The text goes on. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Amen? We know we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. We know it's a stewardship. I prayed it earlier. My body is a stewardship. It's a gift from God. I'm supposed to use it for God. It's about God. My body's about God. 
It's not about Jim. Maybe a little bit, but not very much. I happen to live in this tent, but that's really all it's about as far as I'm concerned. God has made me to glorify Him in this body as weak and frail. Verse 16, very quickly. He says, the days that were ordained for me, you've written them in your book. I love this verse. I love this verse. I'm not going to die one second sooner or live one second longer than God has written in eternity past. So, because I know that's true, I'm not wringing my hands about when I'm going to die. If I die, I die. And it's unavoidably, the, the time that I die is unavoidably set by God. God is, is sovereign in this. God gives life. God takes life. This is His sovereign, divine prerogative. I love how Job says it. Our days are determined by God. Days are determined by the Lord. Verses 17 and 18. David says, Man, when I contemplate the greatness of God, His omniscience, His omnipresence, and His genius in making me, fearfully and wonderfully. He said, these thoughts are too high for me. How precious they are to me. I like how David says it in Psalm 40, uh, verse 5. He says, your thoughts toward us are too numerous to count. Don't you love that? How long has God thought about Jim Albright? From eternity past. As long as God's been God, He's thought about me. Long before my dad met my mom. Long before my grandmother met my grandfather. This is, to me, I, I was really in awe of this thought as I contemplated it. You can't quantify the thoughts of God toward you. You can't quantify them. They're like, as David says, they're like the sand. They can't be counted. This is how much He loves you. As long as God's been God, He's loved you. He's thought about you. He's planned for you. He's provided for your redemption, your sanctification, and your ultimate glorification. That's how much God's been thinking about you. I guess the question comes to my mind, how much do we think about Him? But the worship-provoking thing is, the thoughts He has toward me, I, I'll never be able to count them. For a billion eternities, I'll still be counting them. To me, this I don't know, this was a new thought to me and, and I really uh, was blessed in thinking about it. Verse 18, David says, every, every day I wake up, this is true! All this stuff is true! Every day I wake up, it's true! He's still God! He still loves me! He's still with me! He's still holding me! It's awesome. 19 to 22, very quickly. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Okay. You guys know there are about ten, there are ten psalms 
in the Bible that are called imprecatory songs. Do you know what this term means? Imprecatory means curse. There are ten psalms, eight written by David, two written by two other psalmists, where the psalmist calls down curses on his enemies and or the enemies of God. So how do we understand that? How do we talk about that in light of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 28? Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. How do we understand it? How do we speak about it? I guess the principal thing I want to say is David is uniquely being used of God to write the Word of God. David is a, is a king. David is a prophet. And the other two psalmists are in the same position. They are being uniquely used of God to write the Word of God, to record the fierce wrath of God against His enemies. And it's being spoken first person through David because he's writing it. The bottom line here is, you and I are not like David. We're not like the other two psalmists. We're not in that unique place. So as New Testament Christians, we can agree with the, the imprecatory psalms. We agree it's right for judgment to fall on those who will not repent. It's right. It's not only right, it's desirable that it happens. It's right that it happens. We can agree with that and still love our enemies, as Jesus has commanded. So there's no contradiction here. We can agree with God's right to judge. And again, David and the other psalmists are simply the mouthpiece of God's judgment. I want you to understand that. You and I are, you and I are not in that position. And what you and I need to be concerned about is the words of Jesus in this regard. So we do not take these psalms as encouragement or as incentives to curse our enemies. We hear and understand and put into effect Romans 12, 19-21. God says, Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So we leave all that to God, right? We agree, but we love. We endorse... We teach, we acknowledge that the righteous judgment of God will fall. He spoke it through the, the, the lips or the pen of David and the other two psalmists. We understand that, but you and I are called. And we agree. I just want to make sure we understand. We agree, but we are called to love. So there's no contradiction here. I want you to understand. We don't take vengeance because God will take vengeance. Verses 23-24, very quickly. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. If you read Psalm 139, you think about it very much. You see this transparency, this vulnerability, and this intimacy. That's why I'm highlighted the fact that Christianity is personal. Don't you love this? David knows that God sees his heart. He not only knows God sees his heart, but what else does he say here? We know it from verses 1-6, through six, but what else does he say here in verse 23? He says, search me, God. Know me more. As if it were possible. It's not possible, but really I think what David is communicating is, I delight in God knowing me. 
I delight in God finding every false way in me. I delight in God sanctifying me. Let me ask you, beloved, do you? Do you delight in God sanctifying you? I think that's what David is saying. He says, what does he say? He says, lead me into everlasting way. See if there's anything wrong with me. See if there's any hurtful way in me. Lead me out of it. David's not only acknowledging that God does see it, he's delighting in the fact that God does see it. Uh, quickly, I don't know how long I've preached, but 15 years ago I read a book uh, entitled Sacred Romance. I, 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 I recommend the book. It's not the best book from a theological standpoint. He's a little sloppy sometimes, but the overarching message is beautiful. And I never forget, he said, I remember where I was when I read this and I knew it was right and I still agree that it's right. This was 15, 20 years ago. He says, the human heart was created for beauty, intimacy, and adventure. And the whole point of the book is that what men try to do is they take this, this, this organ, the heart, that God has built for beauty, intimacy, and adventure and we try to tame it and we try to do small things with it when we are called to walk with God. It's a sacred romance, beloved. I hope we see it in Psalm 139. This is a man loving his God. That's all it is. That's all Christianity is. At the end of the day, it's a man or a woman loving God. It's no more complex than that. I know religion likes to make it complex, but it's not. I love how... Uh, the authors of the book, Brent Curtis and John Eldridge, how they talk about it. He says, we are called into a relationship of epic and his historic and heroic intimacy. Don't you love that? That's Christianity. So praise God that He's loved us like He has. Praise God that He's come for us. Praise God for His everlasting beauty, intimacy, and adventure that we discover in Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate the table tonight. tonight.